0: The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network, Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Confused? It's perfectly understandable. This is Thursday, April 4th, 2019. Thank you for supporting Independent News by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. It's been a week of confusing and contradictory developments in the news. The president either is or isn't killing Obamacare, as he had said, and there either will or won't be a replacement program, as he had said. He either will or won't close the Mexican border, as he had said. He's either exonerated or he's not. We'll either see the Mueller report or we won't. And all this while the nation lays vulnerable under crippled national security. On one hand, we have this poll from NBC News and the Wall Street Journal showing that only 29% of us believe that what we've heard so far about the Mueller report in any way clears or vindicates the president. 40%, meanwhile, believe Trump has not been cleared. And in the confused middle, nearly a third of us say, we're just not sure. On the other hand, we have Fox News and other Trump supporters declaring no collusion, no obstruction. Trump himself raced to a political rally to crow about it. It's been a week of celebrations for Trump Republicans, and even the mainstream media has made it sound as though the Russia thing, as Trump calls it, is all over. It isn't. It's confusing, and apparently, that's intentional. The Trump Republican victory dance sends a false message in light of what we know to be true, not the least of which is the report none of us have seen reportedly says the president was not exonerated of obstruction of justice, a criminal offense that is both prosecutable and impeachable. And although Mueller reportedly believed he could not get a jury to convict on the collusion conspiracy question, he listed evidence of it nevertheless. And we not only don't know what the report does say, the man who has it so far hasn't allowed us to see it. Not until after he makes some redactions. Attorney General William Barr auditioned for his new job by voluntarily writing a legal opinion for the White House saying a president cannot be charged with obstruction. After writing 19 pages on that, Barr read Mueller's 380-page report and initially summarized it in three and a half pages. 19 pages on why a president cannot be accused of obstruction and three and a half pages on Mueller's two-year investigation, which decided not to take it upon itself to prosecute. Trump's new attorney general, however, had no qualms about taking it on himself to decide a question that Mueller had left for others was there or was there not a case for obstruction? With pressure building from Congress and the public to release the entire Mueller report, William Barr tried to ease the pressure by offering to release the entire Mueller report, minus the redactions of course, by or before April 15th. Over the past week though, the number of kinds of reductions doubled from two to four. The first kind made sense at first, that no ongoing investigations be exposed or derailed by anything revealed in the special counsel's report. But that apparently was not a concern when Republicans, who then controlled the House, got hold of information from the in-progress investigation of Clinton's emails. The House Intelligence Committee sees classified stuff all the time, so letting at least those committee members see it makes sense, Since, especially since the Mueller report includes details of an intelligence investigation. Barr's second parameter on the redactions also made sense on first hearing that no sensitive intelligence information be released that would reveal intelligence officers' sources and methods. But this one is also arguable since Republicans controlling the House last year demanded and got from the Justice Department exactly that kind of information as it tried to trash the FBI investigation into Trump campaign aide Carter Page. The House Intelligence Committee is legally privy to classified information. It sees it all the time. However unfortunate, however against Justice Department policy, a precedent has been set and Democrats will use these broken precedents to try to get their hands on the unredacted Mueller report. But within days, Barr had applied two more redaction rules. One promised to black out anything that would infringe on the privacy or reputations of peripheral third parties. That, too, is typical Justice Department policy. But in this very atypical case, who decides which players are peripheral or what reputations they're trying to maintain and how much is unduly? That's the redaction that overtaxed Democrats' patience, prompting them to demand the full unredacted report. But also to be redacted, Barr says, anything that could affect ongoing matters the special counsel has referred to other department offices. That's both a reminder that the Mueller probe is continuing through other investigators and through the vigorous grand jury investigations left in its wake. But other special counsels in modern times have released their findings in full to the public or to Congress or both, including the Ken Starr report on Bill Clinton, which launched an impeachment process, however unsuccessful it was. While Congress and the rest of us await the actual Mueller report, or what we can see of it, Trump and his supporters are making the most of this quiet time to declare the president's innocence and his victory over the Democrats who've, in their view, just wasted everyone's time. And perhaps to distract from it with on-again, off-again policies on health care and border security throughout the week. The two-week wait bar wants allows time for redactions and time enough to raise concerns about a possible cover-up by the Trump Department of Justice. Special Counsel Ken Starr, upon finishing his investigation of Bill Clinton, handed his entire unredacted report to Congress. Congress also got sensitive material in the Watergate investigation. Even Republicans who had been faithful to Nixon voted to open up that material. The attorneys general in both cases got court orders to release the grand jury materials related to those cases, and William Barr could have done the same. Instead, he's redacting them. These processes are not new. Not seeing the report, that's new. Unfortunately for Trump, his false narrative on the Mueller report hasn't changed a single mind, judging from a new 538 poll. The poll shows 53% of us still disapprove of the president, while only 42% of us approve. Trump remains the most disapproved president in ratings history, and he's the president with the worst net approval. That is to say, 11% more people disapprove of Trump than approve of him, and that is the worst net approval number of any president in history. And Trump has been unable or unwilling to improve his numbers. All we could do was speculate about what's in the Mueller report, Until yesterday, when the House Judiciary Committee voted to subpoena the entire unredacted report and all the supporting evidence to which the report refers. The deadline for Barr to answer congressional demands to turn over the full and complete Mueller report had passed the day before, and it became clear that Barr was not willing to cooperate voluntarily. Barr and the Trump administration are expected to ask a court to scrap that subpoena, setting the stage for an ugly constitutional court fight between the executive and legislative branches of our government. Attorney General William Barr says the law is on his side. House Judiciary Chair Gerald Nadler says the law is on his side. Republicans had voted with Democrats to demand the release of the full Mueller report, but now that the Barr report had stolen its thunder, Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee voted unanimously against issuing that subpoena. With or without cooperation from the White House or Republicans, Jerry Nadler's committee also plans to subpoena five former White House aides who might have their own documents related to the Russia investigation. The administration is expected to fight those subpoenas as well for former White House counsel Don McGahn and his assistant at the time, former strategist Steve Bannon, former communications director Hope Hicks, and former chief of staff Reince Priebus. Those five former Trump officials have apparently ignored or rejected the request for information the committee sent to 81 individuals and entities as part of its abuse of power investigation. So the fight is on over those subpoenas, and White House lawyers now also have to go to court to face the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, which is asking the D.C. District Court to order the public release of that unredacted Mueller report and all of its supporting evidence. In the meantime, some of Robert Mueller's people are finally, for the first time, talking. The New York Times reports that some of Mueller's investigators, frustrated by the administration's stonewalling, have told colleagues that what's in their report is more damaging to the president than what William Barr has indicated. They didn't say what or why. The Times reports that some Mueller investigators are concerned that because Barr got his spin on the report out first, the public and history could be misled about one of America's most important investigations polls show that many Americans have already come to their own conclusions about what the Mueller report says based on what they've heard from the attorney general and despite the fact they haven't seen the actual Mueller report. The Times reports investigators had prepared their own summaries that Barr's summary wasn't even necessary and they're frustrated that Barr published his and not theirs especially since they've indicated they've already written their report for public release, so it would not require the extensive redactions Barr's making. Mueller's investigators are telling colleagues their report was written to be made public immediately with little or no redaction. The Times report has also increased the desire to call Mueller to testify for Congress to get some straight answers. For the first time in nearly two years, with zero leaks from the special counsel's office the entire time, and now that the investigation is over, Mueller's previously silent investigators are speaking. Presidential lawyer Rudy Giuliani and the primetime host on the so-called Fox News channel are again lying to the public, saying that the Mueller team is a bunch of leakers, despite that two years of silence. The voice of the people also makes a difference, always. 83% of Americans want the Mueller report released, according to a Washington Post poll. And today, pressure to release the entire Mueller report is in the streets, with nationwide protests today planned by a coalition of progressive groups including Move On, Common Cause, Indivisible, and People for the American Way. The last Nobody is Above the Law march was the week before Thanksgiving. In it, tens of thousands of people in well over 200 towns and cities staged marches that in some cases stopped traffic. And with the Mueller report still as secret as Trump's tax returns, people are ready to hit the streets again today. When Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski gave his report to Congress in 1973, like Mueller, he did not press charges or declare innocence or guilt. Neither did the attorney general, and it's curious that William Barr would take up that mantle on his own, especially considering the circumstances of his employment. Since it is against State Department policy to indict a sitting president, Jaworski handed everything he'd gathered over to Congress, which upon seeing it began the bipartisan impeachment hearings for Richard Nixon. Oversight, after all, is one of Congress's main jobs. If or when this Congress gets its hands on Robert Mueller's report, history could repeat itself. That may be what Mueller intended, to leave it to Congress or the voters. But again, we're speculating on a document we haven't seen yet. The Mueller report is also expected to contain numerous examples of ways in which it certainly appears the president sought to obstruct the administration of justice. Obstruction of justice is a hard thing to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, since Prosecutors also have to prove that obstruction is exactly what the defendant was motivated to do. There has to be intent. But it's been the basis for two modern impeachments, Nixons and Clintons, and it's possible the 2016 Trump campaign did not coordinate with Russians to tip the election. They may have just accepted the help. While there may have been no express agreement to cooperate, the Trump campaign knew of Russia's help and accepted it eagerly perhaps without ever raising a criminal finger. It would also show that the Trump campaign likewise did not raise a finger against a political attack by a hostile foreign power. If that's what the Mueller report says happened, Congress will have its work cut out. And just as the Jaworski report was for Congress, a roadmap for the impeachment of Nixon, the Mueller report could be a roadmap for this Congress. A former White House lawyer who now teaches at Duke says The Founding Fathers seemed most concerned, almost obsessed, with keeping foreign influence out of U.S. politics. They worried about a British party or a French party. They did not expect a Russia party. And neither did we until now. And while the rest of us await the actual Mueller report, Republicans are doing more than celebrating what we do not know. They are using their shaky claims of exoneration to go after anyone who's questioned the motives and actions of this president. Mainly, they're going after California Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, and one of those leading the charge investigating Trump, including evidence of the foreign influence those founding fathers feared so much. Or, as our mature and professional president calls him, little pencil neck Adam Schiff. And Trump renewed his call for the punishment of those who have spoken up against him, telling the post-bar report crowd, there has to be accountability because it's all lies. The red hats present for that appearance in Michigan booed loudly at every mention of Adam Schiff's name. And they were attacking Schiff on the floor of the House, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy comparing Schiff to 1950s commie hunter Joe McCarthy and Minority Whip Steve Scalise of Louisiana repeated the Republican demand that Schiff be relieved of his duties as chairman of the Intelligence Committee. Trump no longer has James Comey, Andrew McCabe, James Baker, Peter Strzok, Jeff Sessions, or Robert Mueller to target as enemies. Now in Trump's crosshairs, the one who may very well pose a threat to his presidency, his new villain, Adam Schiff. A week ago tonight, Schiff gave a powerful historical speech directed to the Republicans on his committee. After listing the publicly known evidence of cooperation between the Trump campaign and Russia, the usually cool and collected Adam Schiff was visibly angry when he said, you might think that's okay, I don't. Trump has responded in his mature and professional way by calling Adam Schiff little and sleazy and pencil neck. Trump had tried out that line in a meeting with congressional Republicans before using it, in his Thursday rally. He's got the smallest, thinnest neck I've ever seen, said a president clearly focused on the nation's issues. By Friday, the Trump campaign was selling t-shirts with a caricature of Schiff with a pencil for a neck and a clown nose. The smear campaign had begun against a man leading a key investigation into the foreign influence of this president. And although Republicans argue this is all over and there's nothing to see here, shifts and a dozen other investigations continue. But the 2020 Trump campaign is targeting other Democrats, including Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal and New York Congressman Jerry Nadler, Democratic Party Chair Tom Perez, and former CIA Director John Brennan. In a memo to TV newsrooms last week, the current Trump campaign cautioned news folk against giving any more screen time to any of those listed people since those listed people were so very wrong about the Mueller report that we still haven't seen. They also cautioned newsrooms against giving airtime to California Congressman Eric Swalwell and, of course, Adam Schiff. Ironically, the Trump campaign called on news divisions to ask themselves, quote, does this guest warrant further appearances in our programming given the outrageous and unsupported claims made in the past? Trump's people, meanwhile, from Rudy Giuliani to Kellyanne Conway, have been on TV with gems including Alternative Facts and Truth Isn't Truth, and they keep going on the air. And Trump himself struggled with the word origins this week as he insisted on learning the oranges of the Mueller investigation. Three times he tried to say origins and it came out oranges every time. He kept saying it, substituting the word beginnings at one point indicating he knew his brain had betrayed him. But he kept trying, and it kept coming out oranges. He's fine. But he also, in those comments, indicated he's reversing his position on the Mueller report, thinking maybe it should not be released. Congress, the courts, the Mueller investigators, and the people in the streets are ready for its release. For two years, this president has used an unsecured cell phone while his daughter and son-in-law, both White House officials, talk business on WhatsApp. As you'll hear in greater detail in a moment, security clearances have been handed out like Halloween candy. The president has spilled national security secrets, invited Russians into the White House after a known Russian attack on the American political system for which this president has still not retaliated. And he's conducted serious international business in front of people who just happened to be at his Mar-a-Lago resort at the time because they could afford to be there. Although Mar-a-Lago has become known as the Winter White House, it has been a nightmare from a security standpoint. It's a resort with hundreds of people coming and going each week, bringing money the president wants to keep collecting since he has not divorced himself from his businesses, as he'd said. Mar-a-Lago's internet lacks the proper security protections and the encryption for its Wi-Fi network is weak. No passwords needed for access to databases and printers, according to the government security experts who've been warning the Trump administration about these things for two years. It is in that resort environment that the Secret Service has to protect the president. But now the Secret Service and the Trump administration have to answer for this week's Mar-a-Lago malware mystery. Because on Saturday, a woman with two Chinese passports talked her way past five Secret Service agents and carried into Trump's resort a laptop computer, four cell phones, and a thumb drive that contained computer malware. Security experts are surprised something like this hasn't happened sooner, and maybe it has. The woman with Chinese passports was called out, not by the Secret Service, but by the resort's receptionist. The strange woman was arrested and charged with lying to federal law enforcement and entering a restricted area. The Secret Service says it is the job of Mar-a-Lago security to decide who does and doesn't get in, illustrating the conflict of Trump's business interest versus his oath to serve the country. Every trip he makes there costs taxpayers three and a half million dollars and he goes there a lot. The Secret Service did its job that day. When it comes to protecting the president who was out on the Mar-a-Lago golf course at the time, he was safe. But if someone who could have been a spy got into Mar-a-Lago's weak Wi-Fi and internet security, the Secret Service and the Trump administration will have to answer for this incredibly serious security breach. Adam Schiff's House Intelligence Committee is already investigating. The Founding Fathers would not have been pleased to hear this. A White House employee this week told Congress the Trump administration has overruled senior career security officials and granted security clearances to more than two dozen people. Security officials warned against these clearances and their objections were overruled. The whistleblower, who has a rare form of dwarfism, says she was punished for denying those clearances when personnel files were intentionally placed beyond her reach by Trump White House officials she had refused instructions to reverse her decisions not to issue clearances to members of the Trump White House team, and her height was used as retaliation. The whistleblower is Tricia Newbold, a Republican who worked for 18 years in personnel security for both Republican and Democratic presidents in the White House. Newbold told House investigators this clearance giveaway poses a grave threat to national security. So, House Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings is subpoenaing the former personnel director at the White House who served in Trump's first two years. It was this Klein who overruled official security advice about first daughter Ivanka Trump and her husband Jared Kushner, both of whom serve as top White House aides, each of whom is deemed to be a security risk because of their foreign connections. Newbold's denial of clearance for Jared and Ivanka and nearly two dozen others could only be overturned at the direction of the president, and overturned they were 25 times. Newbold is certain about that number because she kept a list of the names. She also kept the reasons for those security clearances being denied in the first place. Those reasons include conflicts of interest, personal conduct, financial problems, drug use, criminal conduct, and foreign influence. Whistleblower Newbold says she would be doing the nation, her children, and herself a disservice by not speaking up. Elijah Cummings, Democrat-controlled House Oversight Committee, is ready to listen, and it wants to see that list. Jared Kushner's name is on it for conflicts and for personal conduct. The House Ways and Means Committee chair, meanwhile, wants to see Trump's tax returns for the past six years. And he's filed a formal request with the IRS. Chairman Richard Neal says the committee has reason to believe the president is violating federal tax laws. He's also asking for the tax returns from eight of Trump's businesses, the most important eight, the businesses that control hundreds of other Trump ventures. Neal found an IRS rule that requires the Treasury Secretary to respond to congressional requests for information and found that such requests have never in history been denied, even in the case of President Richard Nixon. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin says he's passing this decision off to the head of the IRS. The IRS is an independent agency that cannot be ordered about by a president, but it must answer to Congress. That's the law. Chairman Neal has given the IRS one week to comply with these requests with a deadline of April 10th, and the law is on Chairman Neal's side. He is, in fact, one of only two committee chairs in Congress with the power to see anyone's tax returns, anyone's. And Neil's request sets up another court fight between Congress and the president. Trump's indicated he'll fight the release of his returns, claiming he's still under audit, the same claim he's been making for over two years. The IRS has said there is no rule prohibiting the release of returns while they're being audited. Trump joked with reporters about this request for six years of his returns. Is that all he asked? Adding, usually it's 10, so I guess they're giving up. They are not giving up. And unlike the president, they have learned that the law is on their side. And we will find out if the president, who's repeatedly lied about even the birthplace of his father, really is being audited, or whether it's just another one of his many daily lies. Trump repeated for the third time this week that his father was born in Germany, when in fact his dad was born in New York. One thing the Trump administration was able to keep secret for a while is its handing of sensitive nuclear information to Saudi Arabia, which hopes to become a nuclear weapons power. The administration not only managed to keep this process out of the public eye, it also hid it from its overseers in Congress. The Trump administration has issued at least seven authorizations in the last 18 months, allowing American nuclear energy companies to share that sensitive nuclear information with the Saudis, even though their country has not yet agreed to any of the world's anti-nuclear proliferation treaties. Saudi Arabia, floating on a sea of oil and awash in blazing sunshine, doesn't need to produce nuclear power plants, and yet it says it's building two. It's taking construction bids from the U.S. and Russia and China and others... What the Saudis are actually worried about is their hostile neighbor Iran getting a nuclear weapon first. The Trump administration has been accused of making an end run around the law on sharing this nuclear technology, especially by keeping Congress and the American people in the dark about it. Feeling emboldened by what he sees as vindication Trump has returned to his threats to close the southern border completely to try to completely stop the flow of immigrants and to punish Mexico for not doing more to make that happen. Experts say closing the border would not only not stop the immigrants, it will inflict pain on the U.S. economy. It would kill American jobs, stopping the flow of billions of dollars in U.S. goods and services to Mexico. It would stop the flow of billions of cars to the U.S., driving up prices on the American people. It would stop the shipment of tens of billions of Mexican-made machinery and over $20 billion worth of food for Americans. The avocado supply would virtually dry up within three weeks, California unable to keep up with demand, driving up prices. We also rely on Mexico for beer, wine, and liquor. Billions of dollars in fruits, vegetables, and nuts, including just as many tomatoes as avocados. We buy so much stuff from Mexico, it's in the top three with Canada and China. Business leaders and other experts say to cut off the flow of a billion dollars a day in goods and services between the U.S. and Mexico would be catastrophic. Prices on those many things we've been getting from Mexico would skyrocket and there would likely be shortages. We also get our auto parts from Mexico. Manufacturing plants in the U.S. would have to lay off workers without parts to assemble their vehicles. And of course, you might not be able to get your car repaired. The experts tell the Dallas Morning News a border closing would be devastation for Texas, especially its small businesses. Trump has threatened border closings before, threats on which he never delivered, but he's emboldened and focused, as he was in 2016, on immigration. He also has a pattern of rejecting or ignoring advice. And then he said he would shut the border this week. So far, no official moves have been made to actually close the border, but the warnings went up again because of the tremendous damage it could do to jobs and prices in the U.S. The president, who'd shut down government at taxpayers' expense, was threatening another run at closing the border. Americans in Mexico, have been scrambling this week to get back to the United States in time. As an El Paso man told his wife on the phone, baby, come back home. You don't know what this man will do at any minute. He might shut the border and you'll be stuck there in Juarez for God knows how long. Not to mention no avocados. In the end, reason overcame will, and Trump began to back down on his threat to close the border. Administration officials began to look at the damage it would do and to look for ways to avoid that as much as possible and somehow still keep the boss happy. Trump's certainty about a border closing was now delayed and weighted down with asterisks. The plan that was on is now off. And that was just one of two major domestic reversals from the president this week, giving his own Republican colleagues in Congress a kind of whiplash. In both cases, he'd gone off on a tear and had to be reined in. It's been more than a week since Trump made his move to try to kill Obamacare once and for all. Republican senators running for reelection are nervous about that and have no intention of trying to offer up a replacement plan that Trump has promised his voters. That's because health care is the issue that virtually killed Republicans' election chances in the 2018 midterms. Over a week after we heard of the latest plan to kill Obamacare, there is still no plan to replace it and there won't be from Republicans on Capitol Hill. Republican lawmakers were saying the administration should come up with a plan. But the White House has no plan either, and like the Senate, has no plan to make a plan. Still, the Trump Justice Department has told its prosecutors to stop defending the Affordable Care Act in court and to instead join with the lawyers on the other side in arguing against the health care law that brought coverage to millions of uninsured people. Republicans on the Hill did not see that coming. House Speaker Mitch McConnell learned of it at the same time in the same way the rest of us did when Trump tweeted it at 1 p.m. a week ago Tuesday. Senate Republicans could not understand why Trump was reviving this losing issue for their party until they learned that Trump had been out golfing the weekend before with Lindsey Graham, who had brought up the idea. We'll have a plan that is far better than Obamacare, said Trump. And Republicans in Congress cringed. And begged him to back off. Mitch McConnell told Trump, "No can do so long as Democrats control the House." Finally, Trump began to back down from his promise that the GOP would become the party of health care in 2019 because it won't. Trump would later tweet that the Republican plan to replace the Affordable Care Act would come after the 2020 election for those Americans who can afford to wait that long for a proposal. In the meantime, there is no plan other than Trump's emboldened decision to use the courts to try to wipe out the last trace of Barack Obama. On that subject, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell yesterday invoked the Senate's so called nuclear option to speed the process of confirming the judges being nominated to the Trump administration to stock the courts with conservatives. The nuclear option is a rule that lets the Senate ignore its usual 60 vote minimum for closing debate making it a 51-vote minimum to close debate. It's an option that was created when the Senate was controlled by Democrats and led by then-House Speaker Harry Reid. It's a decision that has come back to haunt Democrats again this week, as the conservative judges keep coming by the dozens. But it is Mitch McConnell who has now taken this nuclear option to the next level, expanding that option to include Supreme Court judges, and as of yesterday, limiting debate on judicial nominees from 30 hours to two. A debate process established over 200 years ago by the nation's founders is in tatters. An earlier Trump effort to weaken the Affordable Care Act, by the way, has also now been struck down. A federal judge has blocked Trump's 2017 executive order to make it easier for small businesses to bypass Obamacare. The judge says the real purpose of the rule was to skirt the law with what he called an end run around the ACA. The cheaper coverage the Trump plan would have okayed would have also offered less insurance. When a plan like that is scooped up by young and healthy people, it robs the government marketplace of money that is used to insure people who are less young and healthy. The 43-page ruling from a judge appointed by George W. Bush was the second defeat in two days for Trump's attack on Obamacare. Health care has long been an important issue to Salon.com's Bob Seska. He's here now with a deep dive into Trump's orders to kill Obamacare with no replacement plan.
1: Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Donald Trump doesn't understand health care. He understands the Affordable Care Act even less, if that's possible. He only appears to grasp that his red hats hate the ACA for reasons not a single one of them can adequately articulate, which, along with his obvious attempt to erase Barack Obama's legacy from history, has motivated the president to reignite his war against the healthcare law. He will likely fail, but don't get happy. Last time around, he came damn close to killing the law, and it could happen again, especially knowing his new and treacherous strategy. Following a ruling by a radical Texas conservative Judge Reed O'Connor striking down the law as unconstitutional, Trump has ordered his Attorney General Bill Barr to support Judge O'Connor's ruling rather than defend the law in court. Barr's predecessor, Jeff Sessions, had already stopped defending the law, but now the Justice Department has been mandated by the White House to join the litigation against the law as it heads up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, telling the court that O'Connor's ruling on the ACA, quote unquote, should be affirmed. In other words, the word from Trump himself is that the entire law has to be obliterated. And once it is, Trump and the congressional Republicans will propose a replacement law, maybe after the election in 2021 maybe so if the law is overturned tomorrow if it's stricken from the books leaving tens of millions of Americans without insurance we'll have to wait at least another 2 years before a replacement law can even be discussed in congress the mayhem that would ensue would be the healthcare equivalent of overturning the interstate highways law with freeways torn up and american traffic disintegrating into chaos Donald Trump appears to be okay with all this. He apparently thrives on chaos, much to our collective dismay. But what he's really trying to do here is a repeat of his approach with DACA, repeal a vitally necessary law, then use its absence as leverage to get something else in exchange for a replacement law. In the case of DACA, Trump tried to use its reinstatement as leverage to get his wall. Fortunately, the court stepped in, and that may end up happening with the ACA, too but the stakes are so much higher given the millions who'd be harmed by this ridiculous gambit. Indeed, vaporizing the entire law would not just hurt or literally kill Americans who have policies purchased through the state ACA exchanges. It'd harm almost everyone. Trump and his disciples don't seem to understand that the ACA contains an entire roster of consumer protections and benefits that apply to all health insurance customers, as well as Medicare recipients, not just Obamacare customers. If the ACA disappears, so will these consumer protections. Number one, the Medicare Part D prescription donut hole that forced retirees to go without meds for part of the year or go broke paying out of pocket is supposed to close by 2020, thanks to the ACA. But a Trump repeal would completely reopen it. There's no immunity for retirees who voted for Trump. The reopening of this coverage gap would apply to everyone with Medicare Part D prescription drug coverage. Everyone. Number two, the ACA requires that all policies cover maternity care, preventative care, mental health, lab tests, disability care, pediatric care, including dental and vision, prescription drugs, ER visits, and so on repealing the ACA would instantly delete these requirements. Are Trumpers really okay with their kids, wives, or disabled relatives losing coverage just to own the libs? I don't think so. Number three, the ACA eliminated annual and lifetime limits on coverage, so you will always be covered regardless of your health status. Before the ACA, insurers would routinely force patients to pay out of pocket for medical care beyond these limits, forcing bankruptcies or loss of medical care. Shockingly, some insurers would simply revoke insurance coverage when a patient became severely ill or injured. A dastardly corporate policy known as rescission that ended with the passage of the ACA. Repealing the ACA, therefore, per Trump and O'Connor, would allow insurers to cancel policies for people in the midst of cancer or other forms of treatment. And after those patients lose their coverage, they won't be able to buy new policies since, without the ACA, insurers could return to denying coverage to people with pre-existing conditions. Number four, the ACA imposed limits on how much you have to spend out of pocket each year, which means insurance companies aren't allowed to raise your deductibles and co-pays beyond a certain annual dollar amount. Repealing the ACA would remove those caps. So you could buy an El Cheapo insurance policy, but the astronomically high deductibles would make the policy unusable. To be clear, these caps on deductibles and so forth would vanish for all insurance policies, allowing insurers to charge infinitely higher deductibles than the ones Trump keeps complaining about. Number five, per the ACA, Insurers have to allow parents to keep their children on their policies until age 26. Thousands of young people would lose their coverage without the ACA. Number six, the ACA mandates that insurance companies have to spend no less than 85% of your premium dollar on actual health care. Trump wants to eliminate this, which means Trump wants insurance companies to spend more on profits and bonuses and less on actual medical care for you. Number seven, given the opioid crisis, it might be a good thing to retain the ACA's funding for drug addiction treatment and prevention. Number eight, the ACA requires background checks on nursing home employees to help prevent elder abuse. No ACA, no more background checks, leading to more violence against elderly residents. Number 9. It's worth noting here that due to Republican disinformation, few Americans know that the expansion of Medicaid isn't financed by the states. Indeed, 90% of the cost for the Medicaid expansion is covered by the federal government, not state governments. So the cost excuse for red state governors is mostly a lie. Nevertheless, the Medicaid expansion in the ACA covering more Americans with low-cost insurance would go away without anything to replace it. Again, this means poor Trump voters as well as the libs. Again, it's breathtaking the sheer number of people who have no idea how the ACA is benefiting them personally. Yes, premiums are rising, and the ACA needs to be supplemented with reforms to strengthen its cost curve bending and to expand the affordability of coverage. One of the proposals I strongly supported back when the law was being passed was the addition of a public option, a government insurance plan not unlike the one provided for government workers. This would create competition with the private insurance companies since the government plan would be more affordable due to its lower overhead. Plus, the public option could be expanded to become Medicare for all. But instead of pursuing additions to the law, perhaps even allowing Trump to rebrand the ACA as Trump Care, he's chosen instead to euthanize it. Trump always makes things worse for Trump, and this is no exception. Now he's on record as wanting to burn the ACA to the ground, so even if he doesn't succeed, he and his Trumper colleagues can be mercilessly attacked for simply wanting the ACA's untimely demise. It's an all-around self-inflicted loss for Trump, especially if he succeeds. It sounds weird, but it's true. If the law disappears, per his wishes, It'll actually be far worse for Trump politically than failing to repeal it. So not only does Trump not understand health care or the ACA, but he doesn't understand how self-destructive he's being with this approach. Oh, hell, I'm with Buzz. Trump doesn't understand anything. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. (laughs) Did I
0: say that? It must have been on your show. Thanks, Bob. Get more of Bob with a subscription at patreon.com slash bobseskashow or Tuesdays and Thursdays at realmnetwork.com. Bob will be back with a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his show every Tuesday. The Republicans in Congress are not just worried about Trump's latest and politically ill-advised attack on Obamacare, cutting protections and benefits for tens of millions of Americans. They're now worried about a reputation that cements them as the party of the one percent. With tax cuts for the corporate and the rich, the destruction of Obamacare puts the blame on them for cutting protections for everyday Americans with pre-existing conditions and cutting benefits to the poor and people with disabilities, including one who was publicly mocked by Trump. Republicans were appalled at the Trump plan to cut funding for the Special Olympics, so much so they got him to reverse his position on that. They're appalled at the lack of empathy for Puerto Rico, a part of the U.S. still struggling two years after a hurricane. They're worried about the return of an image that haunted them in the Mitt Romney campaign of 2012, a campaign clearly dedicated to the wealthiest among us. And Republicans worry to see Democrats salivating at Trump taking on an issue the polls say is owned by Democrats. Stay tuned. Trump's plan for closing the border was on and then it was off. His plan for replacing health care was on and then it was off. Whiplash while we wait for the Mueller report. In addition to threatening to close the border, Trump also announced he's cutting hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to three Central American countries for not doing enough to stop migration to the U.S., Trump's decision to cut off money to Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador came as a surprise to many, including Homeland Security Secretary Christian Nielsen, who had just the day before signed a cooperation agreement with those Central American countries that her department hailed as historic. Trump had undermined the work of his own Homeland Security Secretary but he was also undermining President Obama again, cutting off an aid program launched by his predecessor's administration for the very purpose of reducing immigration to the U.S. from those countries. It is no coincidence that Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador share the same dubious distinctions. They are among the poorest countries on this side of the globe and among the most violent The Obama aid program worked and has continued to work through the first two years of this administration. Immigration from El Salvador has dropped dramatically. Money for law enforcement to reduce crime there and money for groceries have made El Salvador a less violent place and a country from which fewer people want to flee. The now substantiated theory, stabilize a country with aid and its people are less likely to move here. America's career professionals took comfort in knowing that foreign aid can curb immigration, a lesson observed by diplomats now around the world. Their comfort has now been disturbed by a president bent on eliminating a program that was accomplishing the very thing he says he wants to achieve. It was, after all, an Obama program, and removing it is a way for Trump to keep pushing the immigration buttons he believes got him elected. And a couple of footnotes about Trump's intensifying immigration crackdown. A former driver for the Trump family has been in the custody of U.S. immigration officials for the past eight months. Before that, Zoltan Tomas, who migrated here from Romania, had a green card, owned a home, paid taxes, and never broke any laws in the eight years he's been here in the U.S. His wife and his two children, who depend on his income, are all U.S. citizens, his 8-year-old daughter has congenital heart disease. He is clearly not a flight risk and yet he is being held as he has been for 8 months by US immigration officials. Things went sideways for Zoltan Tamas when he applied for his own US citizenship. The background check showed that after he left Romania, he was charged there with insurance fraud. Zoltan Tamas drove for Trump his kids, and his campaign staff in 2016, and Trump once gave Tomas a $100 tip. Tomas would no doubt gladly trade that 100 bucks now for a chance to be with his family again after eight months in an ICE lockup, as Trump's former family driver awaits deportation. Migrants in Florida are now living in greater fear now that the state's Republican lawmakers are backing a bill that would make personnel, in all Florida law enforcement, de facto immigration agents for the federal government, requiring them to hand over to ICE any undocumented people they encounter. But some homes in Mexico are beefing up their home security these days using a perimeter of razor wire fencing that's better than what's offered in Mexican hardware stores. It's exactly the same kind of concertina wire that's being stolen from the U.S. side of the Mexican border recently installed by the Trump administration. Enough U.S. government razor wire to protect a home in Mexico costs 40 pesos, about two bucks. And then there's Puerto Rico. This week, a bill to give government disaster aid to people across the country was voted down in the Senate thanks to unified opposition from Democrats who said the bill just didn't contain enough money for Puerto Rico. Americans are still suffering there more than two years after the devastating Hurricane Maria. A plan to give more money to Puerto Rico also failed in the Senate with unified support of Republicans who were following the directions of their president. Both votes were very close. The result is delays in help for the flood victims in the Midwest, tornado victims in the South, people displaced by volcanic lava in Hawaii, and for hurricane victims in five states and the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico in what is usually a no-brainer bipartisan vote of approval. When Trump was in Puerto Rico after the hurricane, that wasn't the only thing on his mind. Those were the days of tweeting that his nuclear button was bigger than the button controlled by North Korea's Kim Jong-un. The nuclear football was, of course, with Trump in Puerto Rico, where he at one point gestured toward that leather-coated aluminum briefcase where he would enter the code to authorize a nuclear attack this is what I have for Kim, he said, according to sources at CNN. Tossing rolls of paper towels to hurricane victims wasn't the only thing on Trump's mind that day. America needs a political revolution. I believe Bernie Sanders will lead that charge. Those are the words from a 2016 Facebook post by the woman who this week accused former Vice President Joe Biden of kissing her on the back of her head. Lucy Flores, a former Nevada Assemblywoman defeated in her runs for higher office, was a campaign surrogate for Bernie Sanders in 2016 and served on the board of an advocacy group aligned with Sanders. And as Sanders now runs again for president and as competitor Joe Biden prepared to announce his candidacy, Lucy Flores came forth to accuse Biden of unwanted touching, a kiss on the back of her head. She didn't like it. She called it inappropriate. She said it Disqualifies Biden as a presidential candidate for 2020. If Flores was hoping on Friday that another woman would come forward to also accuse Biden of unwanted touching, she got her wish on Monday. Amy Lapos came forward to accuse Biden of rubbing noses with her at a small political fundraiser in Connecticut in 2009. Lapos told the Hartford Current newspaper there was nothing sexual about it, but that Biden had crossed, quote, a line of respect. A day later, several other women came forward, each agreeing that Biden's behavior had made them uncomfortable, but wasn't sexual. No one doubts any of the women's descriptions of how their close encounters with Biden made them feel, only perhaps their motives and their timing. Joe Biden has been known for decades as a tactile politician, shaking hands, hugging, slapping backs, hands on your arm, hands on your shoulder, often to the surprise of the target of his affection, and while he appears to have the unfortunate habit of doing that too much, Biden has never been the target of any sexual allegations and still isn't. None of these women say they were groped or propositioned. All of them said they knew it absolutely was not sexual. Biden denies any inappropriate behavior, but has said he will listen respectfully to what the women have to say. And yet, with Biden's planned announcement that he's running for president in 2020 just days away, Bernie Sanders supporter Lucy Flores is using the recently supercharged word inappropriate to describe Biden's behavior with her. And while Biden's behavior may very well be inappropriate from a personal space standpoint, it does not appear to meet the Me Too standard, despite being framed in that context by this Sanders supporter. Biden is clearly not a Louis C.K. or a Donald Trump, even if he is too tactile for some people, and he clearly is. As Washington Post columnist Karen Tumulty put it, not every offense is of equal severity. Like George W. Bush with Germany's Angela Merkel, Biden is an awkwardly affectionate guy with men and women who's now the victim of right-wing memes, most of them photoshopped fakes. Some even try to mischaracterize perfectly innocent photos of Biden kissing members of his own family. In one photo, Biden standing behind the wife of an Obama cabinet official, hands on her shoulders, whispering in her ear, The woman in that photo says it's one of the ones being used against Biden online, and she says Biden was actually being thoughtful, showing support, and that she wasn't bothered by it at all. A woman who worked as Biden's press secretary, often alone with Biden, says he never once behaved inappropriately. The policy director for the National Alliance to End Sexual Violence calls Biden an amazing ally on campus sexual assault for his energetic sponsorship of the Violence Against Women Act. The Biden camp is accusing conservatives of a smear campaign, and that is the case now. One pro-Trump group says it's putting together creepy Joe ads for television. But it started with the accusation of a Sanders supporter, just as Biden was about to announce, with the two men running neck and neck at the top of the polls. This does not mean Sanders or his campaign were behind these interestingly timed accusations. Sanders himself has said the first accusation didn't sound to him like grounds to disqualify a candidate from running, as his supporter had claimed. The question that was being asked by reporters and the idea that was being pushed by conservatives and Republicans on social media... These were the backers of a president who has bragged about kissing and groping women and more. To our knowledge, Lucy Flores is just one Sanders supporter, speaking only for herself. But it means that Democrats have begun to eat their own at the risk of dividing a party that cannot be divided if it expects to defeat Trump in 2020. With Joe Biden leading the many other Democratic hopefuls in these early days of the 2020 campaign, Trump sees Biden as his obvious target. If, perchance, it gets down to a Trump-Biden race, the president has given us a preview of what we can expect when he mocked the former vice president at a Republican Party fundraiser Tuesday night. Over a dozen women have accused Trump of sexual misconduct. Joe Biden, on the other hand, has posted a video promising to be more respectful of everyone's personal space in the future. Quoting him, I get it now. It's a video we'll never see from Trump. Your Guns Update It was in this past week that the Supreme Court refused to block the Trump administration's ban on bump stocks. Those are the attachments that enable semi-automatic rifles to fire numerous rounds rapidly. They were used in the massacre of 58 people and the wounding of hundreds of others in Las Vegas nearly 2 years ago. Under the Trump rule, Americans who own a half million bump stocks now have 90 days to destroy them or turn them into ATF. The ATF has instructions on its website for crushing, melting and shredding guns. Bump stock owners are not expected to comply with the law. In Colorado, about half the counties in that state have voted against enforcing a new state law requiring police to seize the guns of people found to pose a danger to themselves or others. At least one county sheriff has said he would rather go to jail than seize firearms under that proposed law. The seizure clause is called a red flag law and Colorado was poised to become the 10th state to have one. Former federal prosecutor Lori Lightfoot was elected Chicago's new mayor this week, the city's first black female mayor and its first openly gay mayor. She defeated 13 other candidates in the primary and won the runoff election in a landslide with nearly 75 percent of the vote. She replaces outgoing Mayor Rahm Emanuel and she defeated another black woman who represented the city and county's long-established democratic machine. Lightfoot's top priorities include fighting corruption, and even above that, the city's epidemic gun violence. She will also deal with poverty and the police treatment of its citizens. In Florida, meanwhile, Republicans, dissatisfied in only controlling the governorship, both houses of the legislature, and all the seats on the state's Supreme Court, now want control of the one thing they have not been able to control. The right of Florida voters to gather names on a petition to amend the state's constitution. Over the past week, Florida's Republican lawmakers have introduced bills to make it tougher to get the needed qualified signatures. It would appear they're trying to head off two amendments being petitioned right now. One of them would raise the minimum wage in Florida. The other would give consumers a choice of energy sources and providers increasing competition in alternative energy and breaking the monopolies of the big power companies. But not if Florida's Republican lawmakers get their way, and why wouldn't they? They're especially worried about that minimum wage requirement since it's being pushed by the same influential Florida lawyer who pushed the amendment that legalized medical marijuana. They're worried. Republicans deny this, offering explanations including making sure that out-of-state billionaires and Russians and North Koreans don't finance changes to the state's constitution. Among the Republican proposals, getting a state Supreme Court ruling on an amendment petition, opening the petition for public debate on a state website, and stamped at the top of each signature page in all caps, may require increased taxes or a reduction in government services, if the amendment requires the state spending any money. Petitioned amendments have constituted the only political power progressives have left for decades in the sunshine state. Republicans who control the governorship, the legislature, and a unanimous state Supreme Court want to change that. Americans give up sex, Mick Jagger's heart surgery, and the boss says you have to have an exorcism. In the final segment, up next. Hey, thank you again for using that link at buzzburbank.com for all your shopping, all year round, at home, school, and work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. Just go to buzzburbank.com and click the Amazon logo. You'll land on your usual Amazon page where you can then bookmark and replace your old bookmark. Now once you've done that, I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. On your desktop browser, that Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title BuzzBurbank News and Comments. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal donate button. Thank you for all of those things and for spreading the word about this effort. The president suffered a big setback this past week in his efforts to erase the Obama ban on oil and gas drilling in the Arctic Ocean and along our North Atlantic coastline a federal judge in Alaska ruled that Trump's executive order was illegal because it exceeds his presidential authority under the Constitution. The Trump administration will likely appeal that decision, putting it in the hands of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, where the administration is also likely to lose. It may ultimately wind up before the U.S. Supreme Court. It wasn't looking good for the Britax Child Safety Company, maker of the very popular bob baby stroller for parents who go jogging. The wheels came off the bob, literally and without warning, the front wheel specifically. Parents tore ligaments and even broke bones in the tumbling crashes that followed. Children got their new teeth knocked out and gashes on their faces. Over a hundred kids got hurt. Over 200 complaints flowed into the government's Consumer Product Safety Commission, which investigated for months, according to the Washington Post. When it completed its investigation in early 2017, the commission concluded that this stroller is unsafe and should be recalled. The commission asked Britax Child Safety to do just that, voluntarily, and Britax refused. The agency didn't back down, and neither did the company until the new leadership of the Consumer Product Safety Commission with the new Trump administration. And that was the end of it. The Consumer Product Safety Commission for the first time in 10 years was being run by Republicans. The folks who have allowed the dangerous Bob Strollers to remain on the market without warning to the public now regulate safety for toys and the furniture that can tip over and kill a child, as well as the safety of lawnmowers and other power tools. The Senate is now investigating the Trump administration's failure to recall the injury-causing Bob Strollers. The Boeing 737 MAX drama continues to play out with the revelations of the past week that the doomed Indonesia and Ethiopia jets did not have a couple of safety features because Boeing charged extra for those features. We have now learned that the pilots in the Ethiopia crash had followed Boeing's emergency instructions to counteract that glitchy stall prevention system and the Ethiopian airline is now blaming Boeing for the crash, saying it's not its pilot's fault. Data records show the pilots did in fact turn off Boeing's MCAS anti-stall feature four times in their panicked attempt at saving their passengers from an aircraft that had turned against them. Simultaneously, Boeing was announcing that it will delay the test flight of its new Starliner spacecraft, citing scheduling conflicts. The launch plan for this spring has now been bumped back to August, extending the lead of competitor SpaceX in this new commercial space race. That will push back the second Boeing test flight with a crew. Originally set for August, it has now been delayed at least until November. NASA now says it hopes to get to Mars by 2033. The budget for that will have to be approved as the Trump administration pressures NASA to get back to the moon. It would take astronauts two years after launch just to get to Mars. The renewed push into space is why NASA is paying $19,000 to qualified people who will agree to stay in bed for 60 days. Ever since astronomers discovered black holes in space in the 1970s, movies and TV shows could only imagine what one would actually look like. They won't have to imagine much longer. The European Space Agency says it hopes to have the first photograph of an actual black hole as early as next week, thanks to its work at the Event Horizon Telescope, which is a network of eight radio telescopes around the world. A black hole isn't really something that can be seen, A black hole is so dense even light cannot escape its grip. What we believe we will see is a black globe with a circle of light around it, a thick cloud of gases and dust. Watch this space. Here on earth there are now about 400 reported cases of measles across 15 states in the U.S. A half dozen states have reached outbreak status meaning three cases or more. It's the second highest number of cases since the measles was wiped out in this country 19 years ago. It spreads in the air. The vaccine is 94% effective. In Washington state, the number of people vaccinated against the measles has fallen to below the level required for what public health experts refer to as our herd immunity. Laws tightening the rules on personal exemptions for vaccinations are being considered in seven states, while several other states are looking to make it easier for parents to opt out of the shots for their kids. The finger of blame still points to the dangerously misinformed anti vax community. In California, an unvaccinated child has exposed a terminally ill seven year old to measles as doctors and the boy's parents work to save him from sclerosis. Thanks to a parent who had blown off the vaccinations for their own child, this seven-year-old may be dead sooner rather than later. Doctors in Britain, meanwhile, are feverishly studying a 71-year-old woman who has lived her life almost entirely without pain or anxiety. Scientists are now studying her DNA to find out why, to find a way to to see if there's a way to learn from her body chemistry how we can replicate that reduced sensitivity to life's aches and pains and what we can learn from her about battling anxiety. In Bangladesh, a woman gave birth to a baby. 26 days later, she also gave birth to twins. It turns out this woman has two complete and functioning uteruses, a mom with two wombs, no waiting. Doctors say they didn't notice anything unusual when they birthed that first baby nearly a month before. Quoting one doctor, it's not very common to have two uteruses. No sex, please. We're American. Never have so many Americans had such little sex as they're having right now. The percentage of adults in this country reporting they had no sex in a year reached a record high last year as a 30 year downward trend continued nearly one in four of us is virtually celibate. The aging population has something to do with that, but a surprisingly larger number of men in their 20s is reporting less sex. In fact, experts say young people are leading the drive in going without. The number of 18 to 29-year-olds going a year without sex has more than doubled in the past 10 years. Researchers say young people are waiting to partner up later in life. More of them are living alone or with their parents in the meantime, instead of with someone. And the sexless life has increased more among young men than among young women. Among men under 30, that number has more than tripled. Researchers also believe the proliferation of streaming video, social media, video games, and smartphones is keeping the kids distracted from sex. In the meantime, 51% of us were having sex once a week in 1996. Now it's down to 39%. Mick Jagger is certainly taking a break from it. He's having heart surgery this week at the age of 75. His valve replacement explains the postponement of the Stones' North American tour. Mick is telling American fans to hold on to their tickets, which will be honored, he says, at the rescheduled dates. The Rolling Stones became internationally famous in 1965 with satisfaction. Mick, a grandfather for five years now, also has a daughter who's three. Eric Holder is the name of Obama's attorney general. Weirdly, it is also the name of the 29-year-old man who's been arrested for the gun killing of Grammy-nominated rapper Nipsey Hussle, Hussle who had worked against gang violence after starting out as a gang member was killed outside a clothing store he owned in Los Angeles. Police say the killing was motivated by a personal dispute between Holder and Hustle. A Monday night memorial for Hustle and his community work turned into violent chaos. The popping sounds of thrown bottles mistaken for gunfire set off a stampede, panicking people leaving dozens injured, a couple of them critically. Hustle was killed the day before he was to meet with LA's police chief, to talk about ways he could help stop gang violence and help keep kids out of gangs. Hustle, who said he wanted to give back, also supported the arts. A popular recording artist whose life got off to a typically rough start for L.A.'s Crenshaw neighborhood is to dust at age 33. Radiohead, Janet Jackson, Stevie Nicks, Def Leppard, The Cure, Roxy Music, and The Zombies we're all inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame over the weekend. An artist has to produce music for more than 25 years to qualify. Stevie Nicks, with some help from Harry Styles, dedicated Stop Dragging My Heart Around to the late Tom Petty. It isn't entirely clear why, but the Trump Justice Department is investigating what it believes may be collusion in Hollywood to keep Netflix from getting a fair shake at the Oscars. The Department of Justice is effectively arguing that the annual Academy Awards competition is anti-competitive, as in a violation of federal antitrust laws. The Netflix film Roma was expected by many to win Best Picture this year. It didn't. It was excluded because Netflix refuses to follow the Academy rule that a movie must play for 90 days in theaters, choosing instead to run its movies in independent theater chains for much shorter runs. Steven Spielberg and other Academy execs had argued that Netflix movies shouldn't even be nominated because Netflix won't play by the rules. But that's old news. Spielberg has now backed off that position now that he's got a partnership of his own with Apple TV+, Plus, which plans to run competition with Netflix, or, or at least try. While the Trump Justice Department tries to whip some Sherman Act on the Motion Picture Academy of Arts and Sciences. Dumbo is the top movie this week, opening with a baby elephant-sized $45 million in ticket sales. What it lacks in character development, Tim Burton's darker take on Disney's Dumbo is getting more good reviews than bad. It's a good week for the movie business with three blockbusters. Jordan Peele's Us is holding strong in second place with an additional $34 million take. Captain Marvel is a strong third with $21 million. For tickets, previews, and more, gently click the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. Inside Edition's Deborah Norville is recovering from surgery to remove a thyroid cancer from her neck that had been spotted by a viewer That nodule was isolated, so she'll be fine with regular checkups. Six years ago, a viewer spotted a neck lump on the host of HGTV's Flip or Flop. His thyroid cancer, a bit more advanced, is now in remission. I promised this update, and here it is. It's about the Australian man suing his ex employer, accusing the boss of letting a supervisor bully him by intentionally, repeatedly breaking wind in his direction in a small room with no windows. Five or six times a day, he testified, his attacker taunting him with profane language in the process. The Victoria State Court of Appeal has ruled that flatulence does not necessarily constitute bullying the victim says he will now take his case to Australia's Supreme Court. I'll update you on that, too. A Hampton Inn employee in Kentucky is suing his boss, claiming he was punished for refusing to undergo an exorcism once the boss found out that employee was getting a divorce. The boss said the divorce was the work of demons and that Jason Fields had to undergo an exorcism to keep working there a Florida man, meanwhile, is in trouble with the law for calling 911 to say that he had just been robbed because he just didn't want to go to work at his shift at Hardee's. But 32-year-old Brian Anderson told police quite a story about the two men with guns who would taken his necklace, his money, and his cell phone, and who then jumped into a car and sped away. It took deputies arriving on the scene seconds to see that it was a hoax, The man is now charged with misusing 911 and with giving false information to law enforcement. The shift that Brian didn't want to show up for was to begin at 11 a.m. In New York, a politician has been stretching the truth about his height. At 6'10", Robert Carnegie had been going about claiming he was the world's tallest politician. Perhaps we should have known better. John Gottfried used to play basketball for the University of Northern Iowa, and at just a half inch shy of seven feet tall, he is likely the world's tallest politician in Iowa, an inch and three quarters taller than the New York politician who all this time has been telling a tall tale. And finally, For more than three decades, pieces of telephones that were made in the 1980s have been washing ashore on the beaches of northwest France. They are all bright orange Garfield phones, shaped like the comic strip and cartoon cat that loves lasagna and laziness. More than 200 pieces of Garfield telephones have washed ashore in France for the past 30 years. The French would pick up the pieces and more would wash up sometimes just those big buggy eyes looking up from the rocks. And nobody knew where the phone parts were coming from. The theory among the locals was that a shipping container likely sank to the bottom of the sea and that as it deteriorates, it releases more phones. But divers and military subs looked and reported no sign of a shipping container or any other source for these Garfield phones environmentalists worried about the toxins that might be leaking out of those plastic phones, adding urgency to finding that source. A local woman focused on precisely that, and the source has finally been found. It was indeed a shipping container that had washed into a cave on that rocky shoreline. At low tide, a trail of orange handsets led her and others to that rusted out shipping container. The phone parts are now being used to educate kids about the plastic pollution of the world's oceans. And we finally know why those 80 hardline telephones were washing ashore. We now know the oranges of the Garfield phones. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank News and Comment.